welcome all uh, to today's uh, wonderful session on do all religions really lead to the same god so we are extremely fortunate today we have with us uh, our guest uh, dr howard jeresnik uh, uh, his holiness sadanand das goswami so and we uh, we, we already had uh, two sessions the first one uh, was on uh, really talking about atheism whether atheism is really rational and natural and the next one uh, last sunday we discussed about um, uh, whether science can really rule out uh, any religious experience or god that sort so now today we are ready uh, with deliberating uh, we'll start on uh, discussion on uh, whether different religions that we have uh, all over the globe whether they lead to the same god so i see there are uh, 31 participants now so before we start uh, i think uh, our audience is now familiar with our guest but just for the sake of completeness uh, uh, let me introduce uh, very briefly uh, dr howard jeresnik also known as ridanand das goswami uh, has been a spiritual leader in a worldwide bhakti yoga movement uh, this con many of you know community icc is part of uh, that is con community uh, for over 50 years uh, he has been uh, teaching guiding um, different people uh, and he holds a phd uh, in sanskrit and indian studies from harvard has published uh, many academic books and articles including several publications with the harvard university and has also lectured around the world uh, on the philosophical issues so and the sacred traditions in india uh, he has also established bhakti uh, yoga communities uh, uh, in many countries so we are extremely delighted and fortunate and blessed by uh, the wonderful association of uh, um, dr howard jeresnik ms uh, hridayanand das goswami so as uh, all of you know today we are going to discuss on uh, whether do all religions uh, i mean they really lead to the same god so before we uh, really delve into the subject matter so uh, i would request all the participants uh, to write their questions on this uh, topic uh, on the chat box i'll suitably take it up and also uh, uh, to just to get started i can ask a few questions to our esteemed guest so is that okay uh, uh, dr resnik Oh yes of course okay thank you so much so so uh, i think uh, since today's topic is on god uh, could you kindly tell us uh, your uh, reflections uh, on what is really that entity called god um, <laughs> <laughs> uh the entity called god um i think there is a um there's a sort of a standard basic definition that's been understood for a long time historically and of course people have many other views but i i sort of go with the generic definition which is that god is a supreme being who as a philosophy professor i had at UCLA used to refer to a triple o god um, omnipotent uh omniscient and omnibenevolent which is the latin form of english and 
Otherwise, in Germanic English, it would be all good, all wise, and or all knowing, and uh, all powerful, or all. So omnipotent, omniscient, and uh, omnibenevolent. In other words, all good, infinitely good. Uh, the word benevolent, of course, from the Latin means literally wishing, like we have the word volition, which means will, and so volent means wishing, so benevolent, wishing the good, and then um, omnibenevolent, and then, anyway, I won't go into all the Latin here. So, just sort of the standard God, and uh, of course, that's just the base definition. It's like if you buy a car and you just get the base model, but then you may want to add certain things, <laughs> you know, certain safety features or, you know, better engine or something. So if we're talking about sort of the, you know, the, the base model for God or like a base model of a computer, I think it would be that. And uh, the, also, I think generally included in this uh, sort of most basic definition of God would be uh, the notion found in Vedanta, in the beginning of the uh, Vedanta or Brahma Sutra, and also in the first verse of the Bhagavatam, Janmadhyasya Jataha, that God being the somehow the source of everything. And of course, there are different philosophical or theological or doctrinal views on in what sense is God, the source of everything. For example, in uh, in many forms of Christianity, there's a notion of creation ex nihilo, which literally means from nothing. You know, like annihilate to make something nothing. So ex nihilo. And so, um, whereas we understand, as also the, uh, you could say, uh, most um, or many classical philosophers, Greco-Roman philosophers understood that everything that exists has always existed. So there's no, there's no creation from nothing. The philosopher Parmenides said, uh, who's, who had a lot of influence on Plato, Parmenides said that uh, if you think that something comes from nothing, it's just a language mistake. Because let's say, for example, in English, um, the word nothing exists as a word as much as the word something or everything. And so even though nothing exists positively as a word, it doesn't refer to anything. And so therefore to say that something comes from nothing is not really to say anything because there is no such thing as nothing. And so uh, he argued that, which agrees with Krishna and the Gita, that whatever exists has always existed. The difference is that, of course, matter is susceptible or by its nature is always undergoing transformations. Bikarangsha gunangshaiva, as Krishna explains in chapter 13. So, so that's God, basic definition. No bells and whistles, just the basic definition of God. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. Uh... So uh, those who joined a uh, little late, uh, so they can uh, type their questions in the chat box. So I'll take it up suitably, no matter what the question is. Uh, yeah, yeah you raised, actually, uh, you raised the question initially of um, are all, do all religions lead to the same goal? So perhaps I could speak a word on that. Yeah, thank you. Yes, surely. And... Uh, 
I think to say that is to really reject the notion of rational religion. Mm-hmm. It's just to go to another irrational extreme. Because what we see in history, especially from religions, frankly, that came from the Middle East and, and wanted to spread around the world, is a, uh, is a type of fanaticism that this is the only way. That no one is really seriously in contact with God. I mean, apart from do you make progress in other religions, uh, it's that you're not even really worshiping God. You've got the wrong guy here. You know, you're worshiping some idol, which is just some dead piece of stone or wood or something. And of course, this is, um, so that type of sort of ignorant fanaticism um, I think is, is, is very much connected to uh, Middle Eastern iconoclasm. And uh, by that, I mean that uh, the notion that what are called idols, of course, if you're a rock and roll star, to be an idol is a good thing. If you're a deity, to be an idol is a bad thing now in contemporary English. So, um, but the idea that, like, like a Paul, I mean, you find this explicit iconoclasm in the New Testament, where Paul, who was a brilliant and I think uh, uh, both brilliant and really clueless at the same time on some things, he gives the argument that um, because he was surrounded by pagans, he was surrounded by pagans, and it's very much like India. If you look at Greco-Roman religion, pagan religion, it's very much what I call Mediterranean Hinduism. And there's a lot of the same attitudes, a lot of the same ideas, it's very similar. And of course, Greece and Greek and Latin are very intimately connected to Sanskrit. So it it was really like an Indo-European culture. Just to give one simple example that the, uh, of a Sanskrit word in Roman religion, uh, the god Jupiter, because Jupiter is Sanskrit. It's, it's just Jupiter, the father of heaven. Uh, the Sanskrit word Dhu is just the original sort of a stem form of a word which then becomes divya, divine, or deva. And so you have, a, you have an original form of this word Dhu and then Jupiter, the father of heaven. So anyway, um, the idea that God, now, now maybe I'll get into that because what I want to say is that uh, religions which are sort of iconoclastic in this way and think that any visible manifestation of God is is not only false but even blasphemous. I think I think it's um, I think the source of all that, I think the source of that misunderstanding is um, the fact that these traditions were not very philosophical. And so the Greco-Roman traditions, you know, they were into philosophy. And, and, and later Christianity, you know, in Europe, it, 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 it did philosophy. But in the early stages, so what is philosophy here? What do I mean by philosophy? I mean, you ask the simple question, what is matter? And, not, and, and, and we're asking the question not exactly the same way as, for example, a quantum physicist. And, and 
Ironically, though, if we can bring in quantum physics here, the quantum physicist ultimately doesn't know what matter is. Because as you know, the whole process in, in, in physics has been that you understand something by finding the smallest possible parts. Like first, you know, there are molecules and there are atoms, and then there are parts of the atom. There, there's, a, you know, the, uh, what are they called? The nucleus of the atom and then electrons, and then you break things down, subatomic particles, and then it, it just, it kind of ends up with, I don't know. Do you know? No, I don't know. Because so it's funny. I mean, nowadays to be a materialist is sort of a comical position since no one really knows what matter is. So to say you're a materialist actually doesn't mean anything. So so if 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 you go down into the deepest level of of, of subatomic particles, no one knows what it is. So how can you be a materialist? Maybe it's a soul. Maybe it's Krishna. Maybe it's Vishnu because they don't know what's ultimately in there. So anyway, but so so that's physics. But philosophically, you say, well, what is matter ultimately, and what is matter relationship to God? They didn't ask those questions. They just thought, okay, God is spiritual. Matter is, ugh, you know, it's just it's this gross material stuff. So it's offensive to say that God is matter. So it's considered to be offensive to think that God appears, let's say, in a visible deity made out of wood or metal or um, or st uh, stone. But if you, if, you, if you ask the question, what is matter? And what is matter's relationship to God? Then if you understand that actually everything that exists emanates from God, then matter is also God's divine energy. So then the question becomes, can God appear in matter? And uh, the answer in the Old Testament is yes. Because there's a very famous story where Moses had fled Egypt. And then, and as far as he was concerned, he was just like a happy grihasta. He's just going to live his life, maybe have a few kids, and, you know, that's it. Forget Egypt. Because in Egypt, he was a wanted man. I mean, he would be executed if he went back to Egypt. And so then God appeared to him. How? In a burning bush. Moses saw this miracle that a bush was burning, but did not consume itself. You know, when something's on fire, it burns up. But this was a bush that was on fire, and uh, but it didn't consume itself. And so, and then God, and then Moses heard the voice of God saying, "This, this is of course Indian. Uh, take off your sandals. You know, because you take when you go into a temple, you don't wear your shoes or your sandals." And so. And so the voice of God said, take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. And then it was understood that God had somehow appeared in this mystical way to Moses and ordered him to go back to, Jesus, uh, to Egypt and free all the, the Hebrew slaves there from, from slavery. But, but anyway, so the idea, you know, the, the main idea we're talking about here is uh, are, do all religions lead to the same goal? So previously you have this, this, this fanatical approach that we have the only true religion. I mean, this is like really not very bright. You know, we have the only religion and uh, everyone else is going to hell or some other undesirable place, maybe Florida in the summer or New Delhi in the summer. You know, you go to what happens if you don't accept the one true God. And so, um, and of course that God can't 
appear in, in a visible form. So they have these views and, and they were very fanatical. They're very fanatical. And so therefore, according to you know, what, what um, Galileo called the pendulum effect, actually he was kind of coined that term. And, um, and then the pendulum effect or Newton, I think it's his third law of motion that every, uh, every you know, motion or every uh, force produces an equal and opposite force in the universe. And so that idea of equal and opposite, uh, which you find in Newton, you find in, in, in the pendulum effect, and you find in history also, there is a historical pendulum effect. And this was actually uh, really talked about very explicitly by the philosopher Hegel, who was the sort of the philosopher of history. And so because you have these very fanatical religions, this is the only way they produce their equal opposite reaction, which is fanatical, uh, what I call fanatical metaphysical relativism, that all religions are the same. So to say that all religions are the same is just as fanatical and unphilosophical as to say that we have the only way. And in the middle, in this case, I would find, I, I think the middle position is found in India, historically. I think in India, even thousands of years ago, they got it right. And I'm not saying that because, you know, I'm rooting for the home team or something. I'm saying that because, because it's a historical fact. In India, what you find is that people actually had the intellectual and spiritual maturity to debate these things. Uh, it's not that, for example, the impersonalist told the Vaishnavas that you're going to hell because you're wor worshiping a false god, or the Vaishnavas told the impersonalist that you're all going to hell, although the impersonal liberation is kind of hellish, but it's not technically hell. So, so in that way, in India and in the Greco-Roman civilization, basically in Indo-European civilization, people were able to philosophically debate these things which is not fanatical if you follow the rules of fair argument, of fair debate. It's just like scientists debate, scholars in every field debate things, but they have certain rules. It's not a fanatical claim that you're worshiping a false God and philosophically that makes no sense, but it's true anyway. You know, why would God be a fanatic? Well, because it's not a philosophical opinion. I mean, Paul in, in the New Testament, gives sort of some bad philosophy, which I'll explain. He says the reason that um, the reason that deity worship or idol worship cannot be real religion is because um, is because uh, the idol worshipers, they offer food to God or they offer little clothes, you know, like like puja in India. And he said that, why does God need you to feed him? If he's really God, why do you have to feed him? Of course, this is a very bad argument. And the obvious response to Paul would be, well, if God can find his own food, he can also speak for himself. So why do you have to speak for him? You know, why are you going around everywhere insulting and offending other religions? You know, God can eat for himself. He can speak for himself also. And the obvious point here is that we serve God. We offer Krishna or God or whatever name someone has food or, or we do puja because so that we can learn devotion. 
So in any case, uh, because we are not merely reacting somewhat mindlessly to fanatical religion, we do not get into mindless relativism. And one really brilliant thing about the Bhagavad Gita is that Krishna doesn't say that, uh, let's say there is Judaism and then there's Christianity or beyond that is Hinduism. I mean, it's not, there's no nonsense like that. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is giving a categorical hierarchy. So at a philosophical, categorical, philosophical hierarchy. So for example, when Krishna says that there's the karmi, the person who's, you know, it's a very popular word in the Hare Krishna movement. So, so there's the <laughs> there's the beloved karmi, someone who's literally engaged in karma. In other words, working and then trying to enjoy the fruits of the work. But beyond that, there is uh, karma yoga, where you do your duty, whether it's to your family or your profession, you, you do your ordinary duties but you offer the fruit to God. That is called karma yoga. It's the offering of the fruit to God that turns karma into karma yoga because yoga means link. So if you're working and getting fruits and you keep them, so to speak, in the family and don't make any offering to God, then there's no link. We are Because if there's no yajna, if we're not offering the karma followed, the, the fruit of our work to God, where's the link? There's a sort of funny thing where and many Hindus think that if they if a man works hard and gives all the money to the family, he's a karma yogi. Isn't it that sort of a popular idea? He is a karma yogi, but his link is to his family, not to God. And since everyone in his family is going to leave their body, and it's it's a link which is going to lead him to nothing but death. Whereas if you, so the whole point of yoga link is that through your work, you take the fruit, you offer it to God, and that's the link. It's the offering, arpana, or arpan, as you say, in, I guess, in Hindi. So, um, and so then Krishna says, okay, beyond karma, there's jnana. In other words, rather than just working hard, trying to make money, then, you know, go to, I don't know, Disney World or something. You know, beyond that, uh, there's knowledge, there's wisdom. And so there's a high, so karma, jnana, and then of course, yoga, where you actually link to God, karma yoga or jnana yoga, or ultimately bhakti yoga. And then of course, there, there's bhakti. So what Krishna is, Krishna is not talking about sectarian religions. He's not comparing Hinduism to Christianity, to Islam, to Judaism, to Buddhism. He's talking about philosophical categories. And therefore, if you study any major religion in the world, and by major, I mean it's big enough to manifest all the variety of human processes, because you need, you know, you need a certain scale before you start. It's even in statistics, right? Unless you get to a certain number. It's like if you flip a coin one time and it comes, comes up heads, you can say, well, when you flip coins, they tend to turn up heads. How many times do you flip the coin? Once. Or if you flip it twice and both times it comes up heads and not tails, you say, well, I did a scientific statistical analysis. And when you flip coins, they only come up heads. I mean, obviously, you have to have a certain scale. <laughs> You've got to flip it a lot more times. And so in the same way, in order to observe the full variety of human approaches to religion, you have to get enough people in a, in a religion before you get the full statistical spread. 
you get the full bell curve or whatever. So, so in that way, uh, in major religions that just have enough people and enough freedom, so and enough time in history to really manifest human nature, what you find is that in every religion, there are karmis, there are jnanis, there are yogis, there are mystics. You know, just like in Judaism, uh, there were some people who were kind of disgusted with what they saw as the corruption of Judaism in Jerusalem. The rich people controlled the temple. I and mean, this is a very old story. You know, you find it in every religion. People have a lot of money. They build the temples. They build the churches. And they kind of, you know, control things. And so, um, so they decided to go off to the wilderness. Now, it's interesting because in India... When people wanted to get away from corrupt society, there were two places they went. They either went into what is called Mahavana, the deep forest, or they went to the, to the Himalaya. They went to the mountains. Why? Because the materialistic people don't hang out in deep forests and, or up in the mountains, you know, unless it's just sort of like, I don't know, ecotourism or something. But so, so therefore they get away. Now in Israel, you know, there was, it's a very small place. And there, there wasn't, there weren't many places to go. So the one place you could really get away from everyone, real wilderness was the Dead Sea, which is one of the lowest points on earth. It's like, you do not want to be there in the summer. And so they formed these little yoga communities and uh, they, we know them as the Essenes, like, and they're the ones that, that wrote the, the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls those things that were found, they were the Jewish yogis that left the city and went off into the wilderness and did a type of Jewish yoga. So what? The, so the point I'm making here is that in every tradition, you'll find the karmis, the jnanis, the yogis, the karma yogis, the, the jnana yogis, the vaktas. And so Krishna is giving universal categories. He's not talking about sectarian religions. He's not saying Christianity is better than Islam or Islam is better than Hinduism. He's giving philosophical, sociological, you could say, historical categories, which are totally non-sectarian. Uh, if you kindly permit, uh, can I ask uh, a question on top of that? Uh, sure. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. So uh, I see a lot of questions uh, on different attributes of God. So personally... Okay, we sure. We can, go to, we can go to the questions if you like. Okay, so uh, personally, uh, when I see different religions like uh, Judeo-Christian religions or different Dharmic traditions like uh, Hinduism and all, then other uh, sects. So uh, the basic uh, ontological structures uh, that the believers believes, like for example, Hinduism, when you're talking well within Hinduism, like you get examples of Bhagavad Gita. So there, uh, everything falls into the picture. But uh, when I contrast the understanding of a believer of a particular sect, to another community so uh, both of them kind of uh, believe that uh, this is correct i mean the whole yeah but but you see that's not philosophy if we want to just talk i mean it's like saying that someone prefers vanilla ice cream and someone likes chocolate okay that's not a philosophical issue i mean you can't argue philosophically that vanilla tastes better than chocolate or that I mean, that's absurd that mango ice cream, I guess in India, you must have a lot of mango ice cream. You know, you can't argue, it's not a philosophical argument that mango ice cream tastes better than, than I don't know, banana ice cream or something. And so, and so for someone to say, I believe my religion is best, that's just 
you're telling us about someone's belief. You're not telling us, you're not giving us a philosophical argument. And so philosophy is sort of like the neutral ground. It's just like when you play cricket. I must admit, I have personally never played cricket, but I did play baseball. So, but I've watched cricket games actually. (laughs) So so when you play cricket, uh, you play in a certain field Mm -hmm. and the field has to be level. It's not that for one team, you know, they they say they use the term a level playing field. Like, let's say like soccer, let's say if you're playing soccer, if the field is tilted, so one team is going downhill and the other team is going uphill, you know, you can't play like that. And so the level playing field, the neutral level playing field, same rules for everyone is called philosophy. And so to say that someone believes something is like, how is that relevant to a serious philosophical discussion? I mean, uh, just uh, take the example of, uh, for example, uh, Hinduism. Uh, we have followers of, uh, I mean, we do believe in a very transcendent God, but there are other people, uh, I mean, uh, who philosophically, they, they are kind of happy with uh, the kind of God who is, uh, they take example of pantheism, uh, and they equate the God with uh, the whole universe. I mean, it's favorite for the scientists, I think. So Yeah, but yeah, but um, yeah, pantheism. Okay, let's take pantheism. So, so, uh, so, uh, so the question on whether really God is transcendent or it's eminent. Uh, okay, mean, okay, but if you look at okay, but if you look at pantheism, mm-hmm. if, you, if you look at pantheism, uh, it has no explanatory power. It's just like in physics. If you say, okay, here's a great equation, it doesn't explain anything, but it's kind of a, an elegant equation. It just doesn't explain anything, mm-hmm. and so in science or mathematics, we look for explanatory power. So if if everything in the universe is God, what does that even mean? Does that mean that old, let's say, aluminum uh, Campicola cans or something? Or or also that's part of God? or, Or I mean, it's one thing to say that everything that exists is part of God's power, his energy. But if you say that, for example, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, an office building or your left elbow or an asteroid or, <laughs> you know, or, or a, a bottle of Campicola, you put all these things together and it's God. What does that mean? What, what are you even saying? Probably uh, those who are kind of, uh, they don't want to add on anything extra, some transcendent reality. So they But if you say, no, no, but no, but that's not, if you say they don't want to, that's, that's not philosophy. That's just what they want or don't want. My point is that if, if, if you have an unconscious God, what is the use of it? It's like saying, yeah, I have a great doctor I go to. He's in a coma, but he's a great doctor. <laughs> And so I just go there and sort of stand by his bed. You know, he's in a coma. He's not really conscious as far as we know. I mean, what is the use of a doctor, a lawyer, or a teacher who's, who's unconscious? So what is the use of a God? Because if, if we say God at all, we're trying to explain the source of everything. If, if someone is not trying to explain the source of everything, then they're not really trying to explain God. Right. And, and so if God is unconscious... So what does it mean to say, or like, there's all these like kind of absurd, comical ways of speaking nowadays. I don't know if this absurdity has reached India yet, 
But for example, people say, oh yeah, the universe, you know, gave me another chance. <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> Yeah, people speak that way. I don't know if that nonsense has reached India yet. It's not yet popular here. <laughs> oh, no, in the West. So if you say if you say everything is God, what does that mean? How did everything, if you say that I'm also part of, what does it mean? Then, then what is God? God is just a bunch of matter, some of which is conscious. So what does that even mean to say that everything is God? Pantheism. So probably uh, a better version of pantheism would be panentheism, where you say uh, we have the universe, uh, but we have some extra pieces which are not really part of uh, the space and time of the universe. It's extra. But again, that's not really having any personal attributes. But, of okay, but that. But first of all, that's not pantheism. The uh, the word pan in Greek means everything. So pantheism means uh, everything is God. Yeah, I'm talking about panentheism. I mean, you have uh, oh panentheism. Yeah. Panentheism. No, that's a different word. Yep. I mean, it's so, a, so which, which view are you proposing now? No, I'm saying uh, there is one pantheism where you equate uh, universe with the God. Then there is a panentheism uh, where you say the universe, uh, the reality includes universe and also some extra pieces, uh, which, uh, I mean, the whole structure of... Uh, yeah, God, technically that's not... I don't think that's exactly panentheism. I'll check. I want to be fair to you. Panentheism means the belief or doctrine that God is greater. Oh, yeah, greater than the universe and includes an inter. Okay. Yeah, it's used that way also. Okay. So we'll go with your term. Yeah. My apology. The belief or doctrine that God is greater than the universe and includes and interpenetrates it. Yeah, that's our position because we say that the universe is God's energy. Yes. And and Krishna certainly pervades or you know interpenetrates as they say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's all the words also used differently, but now they're using it this way. Okay, so we'll go with that definition. So uh, the point is uh, when you talk about the nature of uh, the attributes of God, uh, like in uh, Hindu. But that's true. But that's true. I mean, I mean, panentheism is correct. So mm-hmm. so therefore, but what I'm saying is, if for example. No scientist, no, uh, let's say, astronomer or atmospheric scientist has ever actually stood on the surface of the sun with a thermometer. Right. (laughs) And so, and yet everyone assumes that the sun is very hot. You know, for all the obvious reasons. Because we see the, re- the sun's energy is hot, and so the sun itself must be you know, incredibly hot. Therefore, if you see in this universe, there's so much art. If you look at, you know, with, with a, with a, uh, it, it, with a um, like a very powerful microscope, if you look at, let's, or even just a regular microscope, actually not a powerful microscope. If you look at sand grains, like, you know, sand grains, or if you look at snowflakes, if you look at water molecules, I mean, there's art everywhere. Everywhere we turn in the universe, we find art. Everywhere we turn in the universe, we find mind-boggling engineering. If you get into the realm of microbiology, it's just like, it's, it's, it's just stuns the mind 
the level of sophistication of microbiological engineering naturally occurring. And so everywhere we look, we see infinite intelligence, incredible art. We find, as the philosopher Kant pointed out, all of us have deep within ourselves actually a self-evident understanding of a moral law. And people that don't are called uh, psychopaths yeah. and sociopaths. So we agree, science agrees, that at least, you know, at least psychology, maybe a soft science, but, but basically all the social sciences agree that someone who somehow does not have this basic moral software or hardware, this basic, these basic that, no, you can't go and kill innocent people. Right. No, you can't rape other people. That's wrong. You shouldn't do that. And people who lack this, we consider them to be dangerously deficient. That means that we accept that there are objective, powerful, moral laws, and we are wired to understand them. And that means in the universe, there is a powerful moral law, there is art, there is you know, inconceivable engineering. And so therefore, when you postulate a God, your God has to be able to explain all of that. And so how does an impersonal God explain the moral law that is actually inscribed in all of our hearts? How does an impersonal God come up with art? You know, impersonal things don't do art. Impersonal things don't create because if God creates the world and God is impersonal, that means God created the world, but he didn't really want to create it. He had no intention because only people have intention. Only people have desires. And so how do you have a God that creates even though he didn't want, or you can't say he, it didn't want to, but just somehow the universe, it was just sort of some type of fantastic, creative, involuntary burp or something. And I mean, it's just, it just becomes philosophically absurd. Because if you say God is impersonal and you have even any type of basic notion of causality or of plausibility, Mm -hmm. It's absolutely impossible even to begin to explain why the world exists as we know it. Yeah, in this connection, uh, if you permit, uh, just to interrupt you. Uh, yeah, uh, there is an qu interesting question. Uh, suppose yes. God, God comes before us. <laughs> the person, God is a person, he comes before us, uh, then how do I recognize him? <laughs> so there is a no, question. He, he probably has a business card. <laughs> well, first of all, okay, how do, how do we recognize God? Yeah, I mean, if, God, if someone is really God and he comes before you, you're going to know it. I mean, it's, it, for example, if a beautiful, let's say you meet someone who's very, very good looking. I mean, how do you know it? If you meet someone who's kind, how do you know it? If you meet someone who's intelligent, how do you know it? Because we have the power to know these things. And so if you meet someone who's unlimitedly beautiful, unlimitedly kind, unlimitedly intelligent, mm -hmm. then, you know, you've got the guy. Right. Now, the point is that, as we know, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that Naham Prakasha Sarvasya, I am not revealed to everyone. Yoga Maya Samavritaha. And Krishna says not only Abrita, Abrita in Sanskrit means covered. 
So, for example, Krishna says, "Abratam jnana jnanino nityavarina kama rupena kontea." That the soul, an individual souls in this world, is covered by his or her eternal enemy, nityavari, uh, which is lust, kama rupena kontea. So, Krishna uses the word several times, referring to us as abratam, covered. But when Krishna says, "Naham prakasha sarvasya." I'm not revealed to everyone. Yoga Maya Sama Samabrata. He he adds the prefix sum, which means I'm completely covered. Right. Samabrata. And so therefore, Krishna reveals himself to you as he wishes. And Krishna is fair. He's not whimsical. He's not some, you know, some weird deity that just does whimsical things to mess with us. Because Krishna says in the Gita, Jejata Mam Prapadyante. As everyone surrenders to me or approaches me, I precisely reciprocate with them. So the question is not, you know, uh, do I accept God? That's not the question. The question is, does God accept you? Exactly. I mean, let's say, for example, some student is trying to get into the, like some, you know, super, super, uh, competitive university in which they accept, you know, I mean, like 3% of the applicants or for some graduate programs, 1% of the applicants. Mm -hmm. And let's say your academic record is not that impressive. You know, you're just sort of an average student. You're trying to get into this super competitive university. So you're being interviewed by the admissions committee and you just sit back and say, go ahead, convince me. <laughs> You know, convince me. What do you got? You know, you know make an offer I can't refuse. I mean, that is highly delusional. Right, right. You have nothing they want, and they have everything that you want. Mm -hmm. So, in the same way, taking this ignorant position that, okay, God, you know, convince me. Who are you? Mm -hmm. God is, is enjoying infinite bliss in the spiritual world. We are losers. We're in the material world. We're a bunch of losers here. We're going, you know, our bodies are going to die. We bet all our money on the wrong horse. You know, the materialistic people, it's all about the body. But your body is going to die. You're going to lose everything. And you're telling God, make an offer I can't refuse. I mean, there's something really delusional about this. When it comes to philosophy, it's like the burden of proof. God has the burden of proof as if it's just going to totally make God's day if you accept him. You know, God is up in heaven, lonely, doesn't have a lot of friends. And the best thing that could ever happen in God's life is that you believe in him. I mean, seriously? Yeah, that's so, uh, so as far as different uh, religious experiences are concerned, so uh, different religion, we have mystics in uh, in all kinds of religions. Uh, they do uh, say that uh, they have the experience of some divinity. So, but still, uh, why the experiences differ? I mean, uh, the Muslim. Well, first of all, first of all, they don't differ that much. They probably are the same in more ways than they differ. So, if you actually study mysticism. 
because if you if you study mysticism, basically it just all breaks down to the same old categories: personalism, impersonalism, yeah. and and so in every religion you'll find personalism and impersonalism. They're not like an infinite number of categories. There are certain basic experiences. For example, if you study mystic Christianity or mystic Judaism, they talk about the spiritual body of God, that God has a spiritual body. If you look at, um, there's a type of Christian mysticism called uh, bridal mysticism, where the worshiper, the human worshiper, imagines or meditates on himself or herself as the bride of God in a conjugal relationship. And there's even a book in the Old Testament, I think it's called the Song of Songs, which is a whole song where the, the worshiper takes the position, it, it's a conjugal rasa. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if you study world religions, what you find is on a philosophical level, if you're talking about basic definitions of God, there's widespread agreement between religions. Mm -hmm. The differences arise when people get fanatical. Like if you're trying to prove that Muhammad is the seal of all the, you know, Semitic prophets, because in the Old Testament, you have this prophetic tradition. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you have Christianity. And of course, people thought he was just another prophet. And then you have Islam. So, so the, the, historically, the Christians accepted the old and then their own creation, the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And then the Muslims accepted the old New Testament and the Quran. Mm -hmm. And I won't get into all the text critical issues here, but you know, that's a whole other topic. But, but still, they're all accepting that. Mm -hmm. They're all accepting these same basic, and then, you know, they may have debates about what the Bible's actually saying or what the Quran is saying. But um, so they all accept that. And then if you look at, if you look at, for example, on, on the Indian side mm -hmm. or Greco-Roman, because really they're, they're, they're really, it's very interesting that all the major world religions only come from two places in the world. Mm -hmm. They come from India and they come from the Middle East. So we don't have this, you know, sometimes people who are sort of religion bashing and who are not very well educated, they say, oh, there's so many religions all around the world and everyone thinks they have the only way. I mean, that, that's not very intelligent because first of all, the religions that come from India, which are two of the major world religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, and other religions were big at one time and then became highly reduced like Jainism. So, so if, if you look at these world religions, uh, they only come from two places. And if you compare these two places, in one of the places, there was intellectual and religious freedom. In the other area, there wasn't. Mm -hmm. So how can you say that when you have two geographic areas, in one of them, you have very broad freedom of religion. I mean, Buddhism, the Buddhists in India directly denied the Vedas. And, you know, it's not that everyone was killing them. They just had debates about it. Mm -hmm. in, in, in Europe, in medieval Europe, or even in late antiquity under Constantine, all his nonsense. If, if you look at the Middle Eastern religions, if you said, you know, the Bible is false, 
your life expectancy would be dramatically reduced, probably to like within minutes. Yeah. So in India, you could have you could have a whole new religion come and and just declare that all the holy books of this country are false, and no one kills them. So you had this you had this very modern type freedom of religion. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the Middle East and in Middle Eastern traditions, a tendency was the opposite. Mm-hmm. If you look at the Greco, if you look at the uh, Indo-European civilization, they had philosophy. There's only two places in the world. There are only two places in the world where you get independent, comprehensive, indigenous philosophy. And that is India and Europe. And that's the Indo-European culture. And when I say, for example, obviously there were great Jewish philosophers and great Jewish and Christian philosophers, but the philosophy came from the Greco-Roman world. The philosophy came, you know, so that, for example, Augustine, the most influential theologian for centuries in Christianity, he was inspired by Plato, who was a pagan. And so only two places in the world developed independently comprehensive philosophical systems, India and Europe. And those are the only two places where you had complete religious freedom. Because when you have a philosophical approach to religion, there's room for debate. If you have a dogmatic approach to religion, there's only room for killing people that disagree with you. So, uh, so therefore, to say that all religions are this, no, it's, it's so a, a, a theology which comes from a fanatical culture is not necessarily going to be the same, not necessarily as a theology which comes from a free society. Right. And so if you look at, so if you look at, so again, Someone may disagree with me, but we can philosophically debate. It's not that, okay, if you don't agree with me, you're going to hell forever. That's not philosophy. That is violent coercion. And so to spread a religion by violent coercion, by, by you know, presenting that God as the supreme personality of terrorists, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, that's just... So, so therefore, it had, for example, it's Anselm, there was, there was a, 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 actually, a, you know, I would say a great theologian or philosopher in the Christian world, I think he was English, called Anselm. And he came up with this very famous ontological proof for God existence. And his ontological proof was that God is that being than whom no greater being can be conceived. And then he said, if you say God doesn't exist, I can conceive of a greater being, namely one that does exist. So it's, it's kind of a trick argument. But, but the point is that it's very easy to conceive of a God who's greater than one who tortures his own children forever because of some theological confusion, or a God who you don't really know who he is, no face, you know, who is God? So, and, and, and interestingly, you know, Anselm gave this argument, but another person that gave a very similar argument to Anselm is Rupa Goswami. Because in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, Rupa Goswami said that Krishna is the ultimate form of God 
because he has more qualities. He has more of the features of God. So this is basically a very similar to Anselm's argument that the greatest concept of God is the most accurate. Because if God is infinitely great, then the greatest concept is closest to the truth. So, uh, uh, so the follower of one religion, uh, can he uh, see, take advantage of uh, other religious uh, I mean, philosophical uh, issues? Because I see uh, one religion, uh, all religions have different levels of uh, philosophical depth in their theology. So like uh, Hinduism seems to, uh, or Sanatana Dharma seems to uh, encompass uh, far-reaching uh, philosophical issues, the nature of God, nature of the world, and everything. Yes, yes, so, yes. And, and that's, for, I think, among other reasons, it's because of what I said. Because in, in, in India, people had the freedom to philosophize, to debate. There wasn't a, a murderous ecclesiastical authority backed by a king would kill you if you had the wrong philosophy. And so therefore, it, it's just like in any academic field. It's through debate that people strengthen their theories, that people correct the, you know, they, they, they if, if let's say I put forward a thesis in geology, like let's say, or I put forward a theory of why the dinosaurs disappeared. Yeah. And then I put forward my theory and then another scientist says, well, no, you know, your logic is weak here, or you've misinterpreted the evidence here. So the result of this open, free debate among scholars is that scholarship goes to higher and higher levels right. because of the competition, because of the debate. And so in India, precisely because they did have this open debate, it was safe. It was safe to actually challenge and debate. Therefore, the result was very, very advanced theology and philosophy. Right. So uh, in a nutshell, do we all really worship the same God? Because the kind of understanding that different practitioners have different, I mean. I mean yes. So, uh, uh, but, but, you know, not really. I mean, I, I would say what, what Krishna, Krishna doesn't talk directly in the Gita about uh, well, he does actually. He talks about religion and the three modes of nature. Mm -hmm. I think he talks about offerings or austerities because the, the three components of religion in Bhagavad Gita are yajna, dana, tapa. That you because yajna means offering up to something someone higher. That's yajna, and then dana is offering down to charity to people less fortunate. And then, uh, and then tapas is, of course, giving up. So I say sometimes the three components of religion, which Krishna explains in chapter 17 and 18 of the Gita, are giving up. I mean, I mean, I mean giving up to something above you, giving something below you, I mean, in terms of their fortunes, and, and then just renouncing. So, and, and, and that's, and Krishna talks about that. Yajna Danatapa. And then in chapter 18, Arjun says, just one more time, Krishna, let's get this straight, you know, before before the show, before the show's over, that let's just one more time get this straight. Some people say you should give up all activities as an evil or, or as imperfect. Other people say you should never give up yajna dana tapa, sacrifice, offerings to God, 
uh, charity and austerity. And then Krishna says, I will give you my final conclusion now that you never give up these three things. They purify even the great souls. And so, um, so that's really, so in every religion, you'll find these things. Right. In, every, in every religion, you'll find these things. But in India, uh, I, I taught at the University of Florida for, for two semesters, I taught a course on the history of Indian religion. And uh, so I went, I, I went back to the, you know, the Rig Veda all the way up to the Hare Krishna movement, you know, just to explain everything in the history of Indian religion. And it's clear if you study it, that in an open marketplace of religious ideas, where people had intellectual freedom, and they had, and India was a very rich country. It was a very, very rich country. Therefore, people had the time to think about these things. So they had time, they had the ability. There have always been a lot of very intelligent people in India going back in history. So they had the time, they had the brains, and uh, they had the freedom. And another advantage which India had is because, it's interesting, because India, if you look at the, you know, just, you know, roughly India, it, first of all, it has the best system on the planet of natural irrigation. There's no country in the world that has such a favorable you know, river system. You know, you go anywhere in India, you're going to bump into a river. Mm. And so not only that, so India has the best system in the world of natural irrigation. It has uh, every possible climate, you know, from Arctic climate up in the mountains to the, you know, the steamy tropical jungles and everything in between. There are humid places, there are dry places. So You've got everything. I mean, it's like areas like Delhi also. <laughs> oh God, Delhi, yeah. Anyway, my prayers are for those who live in Delhi. So air, I mean, God, there's not much oxygen left there. So anyway, so India always had a large population. India had more natural wealth than any country in the world. You know, then the you know, different invaders start to steal things. But if you look at India for thousands of years, it was the richest country in the world because it had the greatest amount of natural wealth in terms of precious stones, semi-precious stones, agricultural yield. A large because in, in, in pre-industrial civilizations, wealth is land and agricultural production. That's where wealth comes from. And of course, it doesn't hurt to have a lot of precious jewels, semi-precious jewels. And also in India, you had tremendous ingenuity in terms of production of silk and production of, you know, just all kinds of things. And so India was the richest country in the world by far. And so people have leisure time. There's a very large population. People are very intelligent and religiously inclined. They have the freedom to pursue their intellectual and spiritual inclinations. And therefore India was and I made this point in, in my class, I mean, by far the best place on earth to study the variety of religious approaches. Mm. And what you find in that open, free marketplace of competing ideas, the big winner was Krishna. Mm. The big winner was Krishna. In an, it, was, it was like the Olympics of religious debate. And so what you find is if you look at the great 
literature of India, there's been practically the, the whole foundation of Indian civilization, Mahabharata. I mean, how, how can you even describe the, the cultural historical influence of Mahabharata in India? There is no India without Mahabharata in terms of the culture, the beliefs, right. the, the social system. And so, and Mahabharata is basically, ultimately a Vaishnava Shastra. Hmm. Ramayana. I mean, how do you even describe the historical cultural influence of Ramayana? Again, Vaishnava text, Bhagavad Gita. There is no Shaiva Gita. There is no Mahabharata. There's no Ramayana. There's no Gita, which has anything remotely like the intellectual, theological, cultural influence of these Vaishnav texts. And so, um, and, and that's because the people made their choice. People in India could have become Buddhists. They could have become anything they wanted because they had the freedom. But they chose to become Vaishnavas. In, in, in the greatest number, in terms of people actually, not just, okay, you know, in our village or on the street corner, there's a little mandir and I, you know, I offer something to Shakti or to Shiva or this or that because, you know, my child is sick or because I need more money. I'm not talking about just sort of commerce. When people came to serious devotional commitments, then the big winner was Krishna. In a free and open marketplace. It was, it's a, just a historical fact. And so um, we, we're not saying that other religions are false. Some of them are false. There are false religions. For example, people who claim that their religion is to commit terrorist acts, to kill innocent people, that is a false religion. Right. Or to use the Gita's language, it's Tamasa Dharma. Hmm. So the, when, when we say that some religious practices are better than others, it's not on sectarian grounds. It's on philosophical grounds. Mm -hmm. For example, let's say someone is a Sufi uh, and they believe that the goal of life is to love God purely without material desire. And let's say a Hindu uh, has no interest in a Supreme God, is just sees religion as just you know, you throw in a paisa and you get back 10, 10 rupees. So it's, you know, it's better than the stock market. You know, no bank is going to give me interest like that. Exactly. And so in that case, you can't say Hinduism is better than, than some other religion. You can say because in Hinduism, there are people that worship demonic beings. And in Hinduism, there are people who are great saints. There are people who are enlightened philosophers. And so therefore, it's not a question of, of the very idea of comparing Islam, Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism is already uh, a, and not a philosophical approach. Right. So uh, we see uh, in our uh, Hindu tradition, because uh, I'm being a Hindu, I am more aware of that. So uh, we really don't talk about religion, uh, which is kind of uh, attached with a set of belief and faith. We talk about. I know that's because that's because. Hinduism is not really Indian culture. Hinduism, Indian culture is extremely ancient. And Hinduism has existed for about 150 years. 
So therefore, when you talk about Hinduism, you're not talking about Vedic culture. You are not talking about Sanatana Dharma. You are talking about a concoction and, you know, with a, a nod to uh, Vivekananda and uh, Dr. Radhakrishnan, you know, kudos for inventing. Actually, I wrote an article about this, which I can send you or anyone that wants it. Yeah, sure. In which I, it's an academic article in which I traced the, you know, of course, I use the work of other really good scholars. I can't claim as my original research, but you can actually trace the process by which Hinduism was created. Because Vivekananda, they came to this, they had meetings, Dr. Radhakrishna, they came to a conclusion that Christians, you know, are trying to convert us. And now because the Christian countries at this point in history are the rich countries, the powerful countries, we're a colony. And so therefore we have to fight back. And so they actually analyzed that, well, you know, Christianity is kind of like this fanatical religion or Islam, whereas we have this very cosmopolitan culture in which there are different views and people talk about it. And, and so they say, what we need to do is imitate the Malecha dharmas we need to imitate them and we need to create a sectarian religion. And so therefore they said, okay, well, you know, we'll call it Hinduism. Mm -hmm. Using a word, which is non-Vedic, you know, the Indian Supreme Court had a ruling many, many years ago about, gave a definition of Hinduism because at that point in India, different communities like Hindus or Muslims, whatever, had the right to, for example, perform their own burial ceremonies or marriage things. And so the government gave some scope for, because religion was so strong in India for these communities to basically apply their own laws, like for inheritance or for marriage and things like that. So therefore, for those legal purposes, the Indian Supreme Court had to define what is Hindu. And the first point of the definition is a Hindu is one who accepts the Vedas as sacred. So now we have this very interesting situation where to be a Hindu, you have to accept the Vedas, but the Vedas don't accept the word Hindu. <laughs> so this is a totally non-reciprocal relationship. Mm -hmm. And, and here, here's the real poison pill in all of this, that they decided these people, like you know, uh, Dr. Radhakrishnan, all these people decided that in order to circle the wagons, we, you know, in unity there is strength, and so therefore, if we're all going to be one religion, Hinduism, which historically never existed as one religion, then we have to have a philosophy, and so the philosophy for all Hindus will be Shankara. And so it's interesting because they chose as the official philosophy of. Hinduism, a teaching which most Hindus reject. And so now they have this philosophy. Actually, I think they've actually adjusted it because I remember, I don't know how many years ago, maybe a dozen years ago, you know, you get to my age, it all blurs. But um, I was speaking at a Hindu temple in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is, you know, an important city in Tennessee. It has the University of Tennessee there. And so I was speaking in a Hindu temple. And so on the wall, they had this 
poster, which apparently is sent around to many Hindu temples, in which it said, you know, Hinduism, like at a glance, sort of you could look at this picture and this is Hinduism. And it's very interesting because it had, you know, Krishna, Narayan, Shiva, Devi, all these things. And then above them all, because it was hierarchical, above all these deities was Ishwara. No name, because Ishwara is a category, right? I mean, no, no personal name, no form, and that is Hinduism. So in other words, to be a Hindu, according to these official, well, there is no official in Hinduism, but according to these widespread views, you basically have to reject Vaishnavism. You have to, re in, order to be, in order to be a good Hindu, you have to reject Bhagavad Gita. Because Krishna says in the Gita, aham sarvasya prabhava, I am the source of everything. Me, hello, Krishna. And so therefore, you have this silly, and, and of course, why don't the Hindus notice it? Precisely because of this complete grotesque distortion of their own history that we don't care about orthodoxy, which means correct philosophy. We care about orthopraxis, just get the rituals right. So if you go to a Hindu program and everyone is swinging the lights, then, uh, you know, on the plate, then, you know, you're a good Hindu and don't bring up philosophy because then we'll, we may get into an argument. So, but what's interesting is, what's interesting is that this view that Hindus can care about just the rituals and not the philosophy is a complete and I would say a grotesque distortion of sacred Indian history. You want to tell me that Shankara, Ramanuja, Madhvacharya, Vishnu Swami, Vallabhacharya, Rupa Goswami didn't care about philosophy? Certainly they cared a lot. They wrote, established. The most sophisticated theological debate probably in, in human history took place in India. Exactly. The great Vedanta debates. You look at the debates between, let's say, the Kumari Labhata, the, the because there were great Mimamsa intellectuals and scholars. And so you had this big, you know, like it's almost like in the octagon, you know, kind of like this mixed martial arts where you had you had the Buddhists with their philosophers like Nagarjuna, you had these Buddhist philosophers, you had the um, Mimamsa philosophers who were intellectually sophisticated, you had Shankara, you had the Vaishnavas, some of the most sophisticated and, 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 and really earnest philosophical, theological debates in world history took place in India. And so if you want to say that Hinduism doesn't care about philosophy, fine that just don't think for a moment that Hinduism represents Indian history. It's not Indian history. And so there's this major confusion. But of course, since most people are not philosophical, it's like they say the dirty little secret of Christianity, you know, is that no one reads the, the Bible. So, I mean, obviously some people read it, I remember at, at a program, uh, it might have been that same program in Tennessee, which is becoming, looks like a great source of anecdotes. But anyway, I remember, well, actually not just in Tennessee, but many, many, many times 
I've, you know, spoken to the Hindu community. They're, you know, they're really nice people. They're very, very nice people. But, and so almost inevitably, someone will say to me that, oh, yes, but in the Bhagavad Gita, it says this. And of course, it doesn't say that in the Bhagavad Gita. And so basically, it's like whatever crazy idea someone has, oh, yeah, that's from the Bhagavad Gita. But of course, it's really not. And so this idea where you don't care about philosophy, you care about ritual, is degradation. It's not the glory of Hinduism. It's the degradation of Indian culture. Krishna himself says in the Bhagavad Gita that jnan is higher than mere ritual. It's right there in the Gita, for God's sake. I mean, everyone quotes that verse in the Bhagavad Gita, 434, uh, just learn the truth by approaching and so on. So approaching a guru, which is somewhat non-literal translation, but anyway. So everyone quotes that verse, right? But no one pays attention to the verse before that, 433, where Krishna says that... Um, Better than rituals is knowledge. So according to Bhagavad Gita, these people are clueless. Everyone accepts Bhagavad Gita, but no one has the slightest clue about what's in the Gita. So is it some kind of like uh, something to be proud of that you're ignorant of your own sacred scriptures? You have no idea what's really in them and you're proud of that. Yeah, we Hindus don't argue about theology. We just, that's an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment. So uh, We see, uh, I mean, uh, people are nowadays quite comfortable with uh, accepting some impersonal God, thanks to probably <laughs> Sankaracharya's philosophy. Actually, they're not. Actually, they're not comfortable with that. You know, first of all, the overwhelming majority of people, you know, have never had a philosophical thought in their life. Right. You know, which is, you know, it's very promising for democracy. But anyway, so the point is, almost no one is comfortable with impersonalism. Because in India, who doesn't pray to somebody for something? Everyone. Yeah, you can probably count on one hand all the Hindus who never pray to somebody for something. We won't find anybody not praying. Yes. So, so therefore, in India, very, very, very few people are comfortable with a real religion, not just blah, 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 you know, when you say you know, you think you're being a philosopher with no philosophy, not just blah, blah, blah. But as they say, where the rubber meets the road, you know, when it comes down to your real life, everyone prays. What Hindu, when their child is sick, doesn't pray? Yes. And so therefore, who is, who is comfortable with impersonalism? I mean, it seems uh, people are kind of uh, not, they, they're comfortable with uh, accepting praying somebody uh, like uh, some deity, but uh, in the absolute uh, realm, they don't really want to accept 
a transcendent being like krishna a spiritual being spiritual body so so is that because they've reached a rational philosophical conclusion or because a supreme being is a nuisance certainly they they have, don't have a philosophical training or uh, well then it's not well someone to say you see if someone says that i've really thought about it i've heard all the arguments on both sides and i have reasoned my way to impersonalism which is actually impossible because impersonalism is the most irrational illogical idea anyone probably ever had which can be shown philosophically but in any case uh, if you say i just don't accept it what does that mean it's like these people if someone says oh i, I don't accept vaccines I mean, of course, they give their argument, bad example, because it's, it's too controversial. But let's say, for example, someone, let's say I say that, well, actually, Delhi is north of Agra. And someone says, no, I don't think so. That's not, that's not my view. Who cares if someone is so ignorant, they think that Agra is north of Delhi or west of Delhi, why is it, it, it's all this nonsense egalitarianism. Yes, we are equal as souls, not in terms of our intelligence. Mm -hmm. So if someone says, I don't accept a personal God, do they have good reasons or is it just some whimsical, ignorant statement? Self-contradictory. And even if you say, okay, they pray for health or something, but if there are personal entities mm -hmm. who have the power over, who have power over our lives, on what logical grounds do you say that above those personal beings is some impersonal force? So where do those personal beings get their power? Why would an impersonal absolute give power to a person? First of all, impersonal things don't give anything. They don't take anything. They don't create anything. They don't do anything. They don't have, they don't make decisions and they have no motives. So how could you get such an intensely personal world in which the higher you go up the evolutionary ladder, the more personal creatures become. But if you go all the way up, it suddenly blanks out and there's no person. This, this is not philosophy. It's just, it's just nonsense. Yeah, often uh, like uh... People like Dawkins, which uh, as you said last time, no serious philosopher takes seriously. So they, uh, people like him, they advocate that uh, religion has really evolved from uh, human emotions, human need, and it dates back to Freud. And uh, I would uh, say, I would say the obvious fact is atheism is what really comes from human emotions. Like that fool, what's, what was his name? Uh, Stephen Hawkins, that physicist. The point is, if I could say that it's just because of your human emotions, you think there's a real world outside your mind. I mean, anyone can say anything. Any fool can say anything. That's not philosophy and it's not science. If someone said, attributes religion to human emotions, that's not a philosophical statement. There's no evidence of that. That's not science. It's just someone giving their opinion. Reality is not determined by opinion polls. You know, we live in an age where a product is good if a lot of people buy it. And if it's not good, then it's, if people don't buy it, it's not. No, there are excellent products that people don't buy. And there's a lot of garbage that people buy. <clears throat> and so therefore the idea 
that we take an opinion poll to find out what God is, is absurd. Sudocracy. Yeah. So one of the participants is saying that uh, we really don't see any supernatural being or godly being. Um, I mean, of course we see a supernatural being. Anyway, that's an interesting point. Of course we do. Why do Hindus go to mandirs? Why do I go to a mandir? Why do I? I came from, you know, from wealthy family. I have an education. Why am I doing this Hare Krishna thing? Why am I doing it? I mean, do, I mean, do people really think I'm so stupid that with no personal experiential proof, with no self-evident experience, I'm just doing these stupid things? Not. How do you prove? Okay, if, if you want to prove, how do you prove there's a real world outside your mind? Not possible. <laughs> yeah, so therefore anyone, so it's just because of your emotions, you think the world exists. No. Actually, there is such a thing in, in, in philosophy, epistemology is called foundationalism. We have certain experiences which are self-evidential. That's the word Lord Shaitanya used also in his debates with Prakashananda and Sarvabhoma. In other words, when I experience Krishna, it's self-evidently true. I would be completely crazy and irrational not to accept Krishna's existence. Just like I would be foolish not to ex accept the existence of a real world outside my mind. How can someone say that I have not had a self-justifying experience of God? How can someone say that? You see that, first of all, it's a hypocritical statement because only, the only person who can say that is God. Ironically. How can someone say I have not experienced God? And so for all this sort of this non-philosophy, all this silliness, of course, we live in an age when if you want to know what the truth is, you take an opinion poll. Okay. So, for example, let's say a certain percentage of people think the prime minister of England is doing a good job, then he is doing a good job. And if a certain percentage think, if majority think he's not, then he's not. So the facts are irrelevant. We live in this postmodern age where truth is whatever you think it is. Even in and so to me, when I was growing up, that was just called madness. You know, you'd, you'd be taken to an institution if you talk like that. Mm -hmm. The truth is not what you think it is just because you think it. And the truth is not what the majority think. Mm -hmm. The majority of people get most, most things wrong. I mean, why do we get so many bad leaders in the world? Because, you know, people elect someone and then it turns out the person's incompetent. I mean, so many countries are like that. So what has, what do opinion polls, and if you really want to take opinion polls, if you say that, you know, opinion polls matter, okay, I'll give you the greatest of all opinion polls. And that is the majority of all human beings who have ever lived on earth the majority of all human beings, a very strong majority of all human beings who have ever lived on earth believed that there is some type of spiritual reality beyond the empirical world. That was very interesting <coughs> because the materialists will say, oh, 
you know, it's just you just believe in God because of this or that. So they give their opinion. But if an overwhelming majority of all the people that ever lived believe in God, well, that doesn't prove anything. Mm-hmm. So the testimony of billions and billions and billions and billions of people doesn't prove anything, but their testimony as an individual is supposed to be authoritative. That's that's not philosophy. There's a word for that in English. It's called narcissism. It's called, you know, it's called sociopathy. So that the 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 opinions of hundreds of billions of people mean nothing. But your individual opinion is definitive. I mean, that's madness. It's just sort of, it's just sort of clinically mad narcissism. So you think you have the power to declare that it's be for emotional reasons. So overwhelming majority human testimony is meaningless. But the human human testimony of a tiny minority of atheists is authoritative. I mean, to put it mildly, we live in a very crazy world in which so-called intellectuals are often the stupidest people on the planet. Mm -hmm. Because at least common people, they may not be educated, but they have some common sense. So uh, just to uh, digress, uh, maybe detour, maybe. So uh, we're talking about philosophical traditions uh, in India. So uh, do you think uh, India, uh, I mean, lacks uh, a otherwise Western way of uh, doing philosophy? In, the, in, in India, we have theological understandings uh, which embeds philosophy. Uh, but uh, there is, uh, when we see uh, the Western approaches to uh, philosophical quest and uh, theological quest, so there is a uh, there seems to be a contrast to the way Indian uh, scholars uh, proceeded in bygone ages and the way uh, Western uh, philosophical. Well, you see, it 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 it, get, it gets back to the point I was making earlier, and that is that within every religion there are different branches. Now, if you look at Christianity, for example, mm-hmm. if you look at pre-Constantine Christianity, which means Christianity in the first three centuries of its existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't, I mentioned Constantine because he was a Roman emperor that sort of adopted Christianity and began to persecute non-Christians. So before that, it was very diverse. There were philosophical debates. There were very vigorous debates. There were many Christianities. There were many different theologies, and especially what, what scholars call Christologies, like sort of, you know, theological claims about who Christ was. And so, and then you have this period from Constantine up to, well, it goes for over a thousand years, maybe for about, um, you know, 13 or 1400 years, where basically you have this totalitarian mind control in the Christian world, where you are not allowed to think freely, you are not allowed, I mean, you can't have certain kinds of debates. Mm -hmm. And then again, with the onset of the scientific revolution, which led to, of course, directly to the industrial revolution, to the rise of secularism, the French revolution, you have all these changes historically. And so in a sense, you restore the original condition of Christianity where people can actually debate things. Mm-hmm. 
and you're free to say what you think. And you have this period in the middle, which is really these dark ages for religion, where there is not freedom of thought. So I would say that uh, in the West, in Europe and America, when the political situation allows it, yes, there have been vigorous debates on the nature of God, at least among scholars. But then again, we're talking about the Indo-European culture. Mm -hmm. The Indo-European so, culture. So uh, in the philosophical oh. way, if, if we... Uh, I was thinking, should I maybe I could address some of the questions here in the box? Yeah, please, please, please. Okay, because people have written in, I don't. I want to respect their uh, time. Okay, uh, the world over, spirituality and gods are converging. The diversity created by different religions. How do the followers of different religions agree that ultimately all religions lead to the same God? Well, all religions lead to their stated goals. And so, I mean, how can a religion lead to something beyond its stated theology? So what we need to do is we can accept that, yes, in, in many religions, God is present, although I, you know, people like terrorists or like crazy fanatics, I, uh, you know, I'm not comfortable with calling those bona fide religions. But let's say in religions which, which are not evil, and I don't think there's any evil religion. There are certain might, there are groups within religions who I think are evil. So, but if, but, um, all religions lead to the same God. They do, but in different degrees. It's just like all physics classes lead to physics, but there's high school physics and there's postdoctoral physics. So you can say that all physics classes lead to physics, but there are different levels of physics. So next, do we have reasons for accepting the premises of many religions like Christianity, Judaism regarding creation? Uh, no, yes and no. The basic claim that God created the world, yes. The idea that God, that, that, you know, that this is our first life, there was no previous life, or that matter didn't exist before God made it. Which, by the way, I, I, I was listening to a lecture by a uh, Old Testament scholar at Yale University, and she was saying that it is not necessarily the view of the Old Testament that God created ex nihilo, God created from nothing. So it's like... Even in these religions, there are different philosophies, which were, uh, how should I put, uh, unified by violence, not by intellectual agreement. So if you go back and look at these religions before they were, uh, you know, they were silenced, like dissident voices were, were violently silenced, or if you go to these other religions in, in say, in modern context and they have freedom, then there are different views and many people will, you know, would agree with the, our conception. Why is it that the believers of one religion do not agree with the beliefs? Well, many of them do. I mean, I mean, in America, for example, they even did a poll, which is very promising, of just Christians, all kinds of Christians, you know, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, whatever. And it turns out that two-thirds of them, two-thirds of American Christians believe that you can go to heaven in other religions. Okay. So this old idea of fanaticism, that's not among, especially among, obviously, and there's a direct connection between someone's level of education and their openness. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, why is it that people in some little village, let's say in, in Madhya Pradesh, nothing against Madhya Pradesh, be a little village in any Indian state. So, okay, never, okay, re, forget Madhya Pradesh. Let's say you go to some little village in India, or let's say, and, and, and then you go to Delhi or Mumbai or Chennai or Bangalore or, or uh, Hyderabad. Obviously, in, in big cities, they're much more cosmopolitan. Why? Because they're regularly exposed to people from all around the world. They regularly exposed to all kinds of ideas. They're just, they're cosmopolitan because they see the variety of human experience. They realize, you know, everyone's not like me and I've met good people in other religions. If you live in a little village, then uh, you never meet anyone who's different. And so I think it's a question of culture. It's like, where do you live and what's your experience? If you live in a fanatical regime, let's say you live in China and, and, and you know, where the government is this totalitarian uh, dictatorship, <clears throat> then because the government violently persecutes anyone that disagrees with the government really about, about anything, so artificially, you're not going to get a cosmopolitan situation. Clearly, if China had a more civilized, more, you know, human government, China would produce all kinds of varieties of views. And so when you have a cosmopolitan atmosphere, we don't think that, you know, Christians are just wrong. I think that, you know, fanatical claims are wrong. But if they say Jesus, you know, is my savior, fine, you know, have a great time with Jesus. Or if, if some Muslim says the Quran inspires me, you know, go for it. So, so the problem, you see, we have to make a distinction between the positive claims of religion and the negative claims. A positive claim would be God is great, you know, Allah Akbar, you know, God is great or God is merciful. Those are positive claims. If you say God hates everyone that doesn't belong to my religion, that's a negative claim. And, and, and that's ignorant. And so it depends on what kind of claim they're making, what educational level we're talking about. So just the simple statement, you know, people in every religion think they have the only way. First of all, statistically, that's grossly untrue mm -hmm. because actually there's a huge, there are billions of people in the world that don't think that way. Mm -hmm. And if you look at educated Muslims, for example, I mean, truly educated, not just in some madras, but, you know, educated Muslims, uh, they tend to be more cosmopolitan and they, they often have, they're very open-minded. So many atheistic schools uh, like Jainism and, and old schools like Jainism, new like Sant Mat, which I don't really know so much about, don't believe in the supremacy of a Godhead. No, they only believe in the supremacy of their foolish leader. They argue that even so-called God incarnations are below the level and authority of assembly of saints. Seriously? I mean, that just sounds bizarre because the saints are people who love God. Yeah. And so if you have a saint that says, follow me, but not God, we just have another sociopath. As far as Jainism, what, what's interesting about Jainism is it didn't work. I mean, if you look at Buddhism and Jainism, compare them. They both came from India. Yeah. One of them became a world religion. The other one is sort of like a brown dwarf that never became a star. And so, I mean, Jains are nice people nowadays. You know, they're nice people. And there are many, there are many very nice people in India that are Jains. 
So I'm not putting, but I'm saying that if you say there's no God, then ultimately you don't make it. Because your claim that there's no God simply does not match the experience, the deep intuitive experiences of an overwhelming majority of human beings. And you cannot simply by fiat, you cannot just declare that massive, massive human testimony means nothing. Because if you say that, then what about our intuition that there's a real world outside our minds? Maybe that doesn't mean anything. So you're going down a very slippery slope. You're going to end up in a very dark place in terms of your mental condition if you think that you can whimsically just reject human testimony. So I think the fact that now, now Buddhism did accept a God. You know, they have their bodhisattvas. And ultimately, if you read the texts like the Lotus Sutra, of those branches of Buddhism that really worked, that really became major religions, they've got divine beings. They have divine beings. They have supreme divine beings. They've got all of it. And things like Jainism that didn't accept a God, basically, they uh, the market rejected them because their teachings do not coincide with what with most people's deep intuitions. So then it's like arguing that parliament is supreme than any more than any individual person. Democracy, yes, but but um, an interesting analogy, very interesting analogy there. So we should be careful about trying to impose current political fashion on ultimate entities. And um, so to say that because we have a we have a parliamentary system or a congressional system or division of powers and all that. It's the same way with God. Uh, I don't follow the logic. For one thing, God is much more efficient than parliaments. I mean, parliaments, I mean, democratic governments on, are notoriously inefficient. Mm. Whereas God has very efficiently maintained the world. So the efficiency of the laws of nature seems to indicate it's not a parliamentary system. So are the attributes of God defined similarly in Bible, Quran, and Upanishads? Not to the same level of detail. How is God defined in the Quran as a supreme being? But the idea of a person, I mean, Muslims are not even allowed to paint pictures. They were so like incredibly iconoclastic. That's why Muslim calligraphy became so advanced because that's the only thing that artists could do for God's sake. You know, if you were an artist, like a born artist, you couldn't do art. So calligraphy. But it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's really just amputating a huge dimension of God's creation, the visual dimension. God has created eyes. God has given us vision, beauty. And so to cut all that out is, uh, I think, a really, it's a bad move. The Quran is very simple. I mean, you can, YouTube, there's a million things in the Quran, but it's, it's sort of very, very simple theology. Is it possible that all humanity starts believing in the common attitude and beliefs and behave in a manner to reform their behavior and actions to start caring for all humans? No. I mean, is it possible? I mean, you know, <laughs> what's possible, what's not possible? But the point is, it's saying that, it's like saying, I love my mother just because she cooks for me. I mean, really? I, I, I was very fortunate. I was born into a very good family. I had very good loving parents, for which I'm very grateful to Krishna. And to say that, okay, my feelings of having loved my mother 
or just because, you know, she cooked for me or she cleaned my room or she put, no, people love God because they love God. If someone, it, 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 God is not a surrogate, is not a proxy for humanism. And frankly, you want to be honest? Most human beings are not at all lovable. Most human beings are selfish, ignorant, and uh, I mean, who gives a damn about you in India? People care about their own family. You know, how many people in or America or Germany, anywhere? How many people really give and care about you? Why are people lovable? Just because they're humans? Just because you're anatomically human, therefore you're lovable? Are you a, a, a loving person? Or are you lovable? As a soul, you are. But, it, but as, I mean, who ever said that humanity is lovable? If we study humanity, I mean, yeah, there are beautiful acts and there are nice people. You look at all the wars, the selfishness, the greed. People don't hesitate to mess up somebody else's life if they can make an extra rupee or a dollar or a, or a euro. I mean, the selfishness, the vanity, the false pride of human beings is just, it's, it's absurd. Yes, underneath there's a pure soul. So to say that I you know, talk about God just to love people is, a, is why? I love God because he's not a human. I mean, I've tried loving humans. You know, I mean, it's not that we don't love humans. I mean, of course, you know, we care about people, but because they're part of God. We don't care about God because he's just sort of some little epiphenomenon that popped out of you know, human dealings. It's exactly the opposite. I love people because I know they're part of Krishna. And Krishna says that in the Gita, Mamai Vangsa Jiva Loki, that every, every living being is part of me. It's because of Krishna that I can look at humans with all their selfishness and ignorance and still say, okay, I love them because I know you're really a soul. You're just kind of a little confused right now. So the mission of responsible citizens, when you actually, it's interesting because non-theistic humanism has never produced a moral society a sustainable moral society. If we look at all the moral codes in, 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 in the world, you know, thou shalt not kill, or, you know, what is it? Uh, what do they say in India? That Jagat Kutumbakam or something like that? I don't know. In other words, it's because of God. Moral systems come from religious Basudaiva systems. Kutumbakam. What? The what? Basudaiva Kutumbakam, he's saying. Yeah. So, um, so this idea that Manava Seva, Madhava Seva is um, in one sense, I mean, obviously Krishna describes the three gunas. So if you act in Sattva Guna and you were kind and compassionate, yeah, you get some points. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Urdhvanga Chanti Sattva Sta, that if you are Sattva Sta, if you are situated in goodness, you'll be elevated. Krishna says, Atra sattvam nirmalatvat prakashakamanamayam. That sattva, goodness, virtue, uh, is prakashakam. It's enlightening. And it is uh, uh, prakashakamanamayam. It gives you well-being. And so, yes, good, you know, material goodness is better than nothing. 
But ultimately, material goodness doesn't take people all the way. How can you be compassionate to people if you don't care about their ultimate interest? You know, you can give them some chapatis every day, or you can give them, you know, give them some charity, but then they die. Then what happens? You're not going to be there to help them. When then they die and their karma kicks in, you're not going to be there. And so if you really care about people, you give them Krishna. So we all worship the same God just in different ways is a fairly easy thing to say if we don't know what different religions believe. For example, this is interesting, Shankar does. Uh, for example, Buddhists deny the existence of personal God. Well, Hindus believe in many gods. What's interesting, just if I can interject something, is that Buddha did not deny God. You know, it's very interesting because the, the second sermon, just after the grand opening of the, uh, you know, the Buddhist mall, you know, when Buddhism first got started in the Deer Park, and they're still in you know, the grand opening, Buddha gave his first sermon, then he gave a second sermon. And the second sermon is officially called the Sermon on the Non-Existence of the Soul. And if you read that, he doesn't say it. Buddha never said there's no God. Buddha never said there's no soul. His followers... He just said, I'm not going to talk about it. That's ironic, isn't it? And the only reason Buddha became a world religion is because it took back these ideas of a divine being that saves you. Okay. And so the Buddhism that became a world religion, not the sort of, you know, intellectual Buddhism for, you know, people that think they're intellectuals, but the, um, but the real Buddhism is not atheistic, actually. It's just didn't have an opinion on it. And later, Mahayana Buddhism is very theistic. So the three monotheistic religions, uh, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, there are fundamental differences in God's character attributes, and especially his nature. I would say that there are um, differences of, the difference is almost more quantitative. If you look at Jesus, for example, at least, you know, there's that old joke that Jesus Finally, you know, leaves this world, ascends to heaven, and then he goes to meet God again. And God says, my son, welcome. I just have one question. Exactly what did you tell those people? So, because, I mean, the joke is that, you know, what did Jesus really teach? And, and there are all these historical. So let's say to the extent we can be fairly confident in as historians that Jesus really taught these things. It's not fanatical. It's not that this is the only way. There's no eternal hell. There's no original sin. In fact, for the first century after Jesus, all of his followers, the apostles, Paul, another topic, but all the leaders of the Jesus movement after his disappearance, they never believed they were starting a new religion. They thought they were reforming Judaism. There's no such thing as Christianity. Neither Jesus nor his followers even used the word Christianity. This is a, an academic consensus. There's always some outlier that says something else. But in terms of mainstream scholarship on Christianity, the apostles, the followers of Jesus, direct followers who knew him, of course, Paul didn't know him, did not think they were starting a new religion. They were reforming Judaism. And what was the reform? The reform was you have to be more compassionate. You have to care about people. 
The Sabbath is made for man. Man is not made for the Sabbath. You have to be forgiving. Let him who is without sin throw the first stone. So therefore, uh, all these ideas that this is the only way that, uh, that, you know, original sin and that Jesus died for your sins and that the Trinity doctrine, that's not, that's not original. That's not Jesus. Jesus didn't teach a Trinity doctrine. And, 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 and so, again, when you have sectarian people who become murderously sectarian, I mean, even Constantine, the first guy, the first, you know, Roman political leader who, who, who accepted Christianity, he puts out this edict that anyone that disagrees with the church doctrine, which, by the way, Jesus never taught, should be killed. So the, the rise of Christianity as a world religion exactly coincides, coincides with the manifestation of Christianity as a murderous, fanatical organization. And in fact, you have, I mean, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. This is not against Jesus. And this is not against the many true saints who follow Jesus. There are many great souls that follow Jesus who are really admirable, saintly people. And Jesus is admirable. But you have this murderous regime where anything declared to be heresy is, is punished by murder, by killing the person. And you're not allowed to think other ways. I mean, there's a whole history. You can trace the whole history of this historical development. And that's why science became atheistic, because they were reacting against that. They thought that you know, you can't, you can't accept religion at the same time have intellectual freedom. Right. So anyway, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity especially distinguished Christianity from the world's religion. Yeah, the Trinity doctrine, there's no time now, but it's, in my mind, it's actually polytheism. And it's, um, but that's, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you're interested. It's a very interesting topic, but we'll have to talk about it at a different time. Yeah. So if God is infinite, then it means there is no place where God may not exist as nothing apart and separate from infinite may exist. So does it mean that everything is God? <laughs> Clever. Or only God exists and rest are just temporary false appearance. <laughs> um, this actually gets into the beta beta philosophy. Exactly. Everything is God, but everything is not God. And so there's a oneness and difference. Ramanuja also taught this, by the way, in his famous Sharida Sharidi analogy but so Krishna's everywhere but he's not in material space and so you could raise the question can two physical objects occupy exactly the same space in other words even down to you know molecular subatomic space what's the answer it's to Sarah, but I can unmute well let's say for okay let's talk on the macro level yeah, suddenly because uh, we won't get in, we won't get into some of the uh, spooky actions of quantum physics. So if you talk on the macro level, like Newtonian physics, right now my computer is on my desk, and I assume yours is on your desk, and so therefore no other like this glass of water can <laughs> cannot occupy the exact same physical space as my computer. But with Krishna, it's different. Krishna talks about this, by the way, in the beginning of chapter nine of the Gita where he says, I am in everything, but I'm not in everything. Everything is in me, but everything is not in me. Mm -hmm. And so we're not talking about physical space here. Mm -hmm. So Krishna is everywhere, and yet he's not 
everywhere and he's not in everything. I mean, he is in everything, but at the same time, uh, everything is not Krishna. So I suggest you read those chapters of, um, in the beginning of chapter nine, you'll find those chapters, mayatatam. The first uh, words are mayatatam idam sarvam. I pervade this world, but I'm not everywhere. And so we're dealing with a very different type of physics. And if you understand the what Krishna is talking about, then you'll see that although he's everywhere and everything is in him, everything is not him. And Krishna says, in another sense, everything is not in me. <laughs> so, so did I experience the presence of God? Yeah, I did, actually. I mean, I'm not going to be falsely humble. I can't be genuinely humble or falsely humble. So <laughs> I'll just say that, yes, by, by the mercy of a, a very powerful Acharya Prabhupada, uh, yes, I have experienced, I think I experience God every day. Otherwise, I mean, one day I just wake up and say, what am I doing in the Hare Krishna movement? So, yes, and, and I'm, the, I'm the person who, I don't just do things because I've always done them. I mean, I kind of am a free thinker. I'm actually infamous in some places for that, but I am sort of a free thinker. And I can honestly say everything that I do in my own bhakti yoga practice of Krishna consciousness, I do because it makes sense to me. I don't think I do anything that doesn't make sense to me. And for something to make sense to me, I have to see the logic of it. It has to be consistent with my personal experiences. And so, for example, uh, we started this, uh, you know, nefarious movement called Krishna West. And, um, and so one of the points is that uh, if you live in a particular country, you can in terms of external superficial things like the way you dress or things like that, you can you know, follow the mainstream customs of your country. Of course, nowadays with globalization, it's almost the same any, everywhere anyway. But, um, and so it's not that there's some sacred Vaishnav dress because Shastras never talked about that and Prabhupada denied it. And so, um, and so therefore, because I need personally I have to have a reasonable life. I can't do things that make no sense to me unless I have to, I need a good reason to do things. And so I can honestly say that everything I do in my life and I do practice bhakti yoga and follow our principles is because it makes perfect sense to me. And my, I have my daily experiences of Krishna are such that it would be completely irrational of me not to serve Krishna. So if open-minded religion is only, oh, how should we take the predictions as in Srimad Bhagavatam, Bhavisha Purana? Okay, uh, watch out for the Bhavisha Purana <laughs> because, because the Bhavisha, Bhavisha means future, literally what will be. It's interesting in Sanskrit and also in so many other languages, the word for future is which is the to come, that which is to come, like the Zukunft in German or the Avenir. In Latin languages, that which is to come. And so bhavisha is just the um, stem, future tense stem of the verb to be, which means it will be, that which will be. <laughs> and so uh, the bhavisha purana means the, um, the future purana. And it's notoriously corrupt. It's kind of like 
anyone in India that wanted to push some idea, they you know wrote a few verses and stuck it in their printing of the Bhavisha Purana. <laughs> so you probably find you know the Apple corporate, you know, Apple computers nowadays in the Bhavisha Purana. So oh, anyway, uh, it's interesting that um, the first direct reference we have where a great personality in Vedic culture directly says there are serious problems in text transmission that texts tend to be corrupted over time. But you know, the first person who says this, Krishna. Yeah. It's in chapter four of the Gita, when Krishna says that, even parampara prapta mi mang raja seyobidu, sakali neha mahata joganasta parantapa, that I taught Vivaswan, Vivaswan taught Manu, he taught Ikshwaku, but then mahata sakali neha mata, mahakala, Mahakala Dwara, as they say in Bengali, that by this great time, yoga nasta, by yoga, Krishna here means spiritual science. So Krishna himself says that teachings, sacred teachings become corrupted and even destroyed over time. That's a very modern statement from Krishna. Krishna is talking about problems in text transmission. The next, I don't mean the next person, but just another very famous person that even, you know, says the same thing is Madhavacharya, Madhvacharya of uh, um, Karnataka. The great Madhvacharya. He wrote a book on Mahabharata called Mahabharata Tatparya Nirnaya. And he just, wow, he lets it rip. I mean, Madhvacharya gives a scathing analysis of Mahabharata saying that, you know, there's corruptions everywhere, interpolations, extrapolations, the texts out of order. And so the idea that we have a bunch of texts that have never been altered. Now, fortunately, we are very fortunate because our primary texts are not corrupted. For example, Srimad Bhagavatam. We know that Srimad Bhagavatam, we know for two good reasons that the Srimad Bhagavatam is not a corrupt text. One reason is because Lord Chaitanya accepted it and it was good enough for God, it's good enough for me. Secondly, because the Bhagavatam is just, it doesn't show all the signs of corruption. So even from the point of view of academic scholarship and from the spiritual point of view, the Bhagavatam really is the Amalang Puranam. Now, um, the Bhagavad Gita, even though the Mahabharata is so corrupt, and, and the, the Gita is part of the Mahabharata, the Gita is not corrupt. And for I think for obvious reasons. First of all, we know that, that my professor at Harvard, uh, who was very famous, Professor Witzel, he's a great Sanskrit scholar, he used to always say that when you hear the Rig Veda chanted, properly it's like it's like a, a tape recording thousands of years old because in the, the rig veda or in the veda in general the power is not in the ideas so much the power is in the actual pronunciation the actual physical pronunciation and you get a very good example of this in the bhagavatam where the uh, deva twashta is performing a ritual to get revenge against Indra, who killed his son, Visharupa. And so in that sacrifice, he's chanting a mantra, which is uh, Indra 
Indra Shatru. Now, in the word Indra Shatru, which is a, uh, a actually, he wanted it to be a Tat Purusha compound in Sanskrit, which means Shatru, the mortal enemy of Indra. He wanted to say, let the sacrifice produce the mortal, mortal enemy of Indra. In other words, will kill Indra, which will be a Tat Purusha compound. It would be Indrasya Shatru, the mortal enemy of Indra. But he just missed one accent. So instead of not even, a, he didn't get the word wrong, didn't even get the nothing. He just got, he misplaced the accent. So instead of saying in Indra Shatru, Indrasya Shatru, the enemy of Indra, he accidentally said Indra Shatru, which is a uh, Karmadarya compound, which means Indra is the mortal enemy of this being. In other words, Indra will kill him. So just because of one, so it had nothing to do with are you sincere and what's in your heart and do you believe in God? It had nothing to do with that. He just, it, he just got the accent wrong. And so therefore he produced a demon, or actually not a demon, it's actually a Vaishnava, but he produced a creature whom Indra killed. Now, if you look at the Upanishads, in the Upanishads, it's not about the phonemes, it's not about the pronunciation, it's about the ideas. The Upanishad is about ideas. And so therefore, and I'll give you just one hint of how Indologists get it all wrong in terms of their chronology these scholars, because if you have a text in which everything, all the power depends on precise pronunciation, you have to preserve that text. You have to preserve that text. And so therefore, I think scholars agree that the way the Brahmins memorized the Rig Veda, or other Vedas, was the greatest feat of memorization in human history. It was the greatest feat of memorization in human history. But then when you look at the Upanishads, and, and so therefore, if you look at all the Vedic literatures, the, the Vedas, the Brahmanas, the Upanishads, Aranyaka literature, Smriti literature, Puranas, and everything, you find the oldest language in the Veda. And therefore, they've concluded that the Vedas are older than all these other literatures. But of course, from our point of view, the Sanskrit language in the Vedas is old because it had to be preserved. Whereas the Upanishads, you didn't have to preserve the exact. For example, if you're explaining Bhagavad Gita, you can explain it in your own words. And if the philosophy is correct, it has the same power. So therefore, there was no need. There was no cultural or spiritual need to keep the same precise language in the Upanishads, as long as you kept the ideas correct. And then, so that's ideas. And then when you get to the Puranas, Itihasa, say like Mahabharata, it's not really, it's not the sound itself, and it's not even the philosophy. It was more the, is more the story. And, and even then the stories became, anyway, it's because they couldn't memorize. The Mahabharata was too much even for Brahmins to memorize, and the Mahabharata was an oral tradition for thousands of years, and so uh, it became corrupted. But I, I forget what was the original point we were talking about here, that... Um, 
Yeah, the, the Bhavisha Purana. And, and so we have from Krishna himself, we have from Madhvacharya and from others that there are text corruptions. There are also other kinds, and also the, the let's say the Bhagavatam, it, 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 it's a very intellectually sophisticated work. It's not all just like, you know, religious fanatic that this book is the inerrant literal word of God. Some things are. But for example, in the Bhagavatam, it said that um, eclipses of the sun and moon occurred when Rahu swallows them or chases them. Now, the um, as I said before, the Acharya say in their commentaries, that's obviously not what really happens. In other words, it's just astronomical principles. Mm. And so there's all kinds of, so the Bhavisha Purana, other Puranas, we need a, 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 an uncorrupted text or uncorrupted passage in a text. And that's why the Bhagavatam is so important. And that's why the Gita is so important. And of course, when we get to things like Chaitanya Charitamrita, we're well within documented modern history. Right. There's no real question. Yeah, I think so, if you, <laughs> it's 9.35. Uh, there are so many of the questions. So what do you suggest? Uh, Maybe I could go maybe just five minutes. I'll try to race okay. through these. So if I'm racing through your question, uh, my apologies, but I have no choice between a rock yeah, and a hard place. Yeah. Those who question could not be answered. Uh, so the rest of the questions, uh, they can, uh, there is a uh, link, sdgoswami.com posted. So you can uh, uh, post there. Yes. Yes, that, that is also yeah. one. Yeah, please do that. So if open-minded religion is only amongst minority of the human population, actually more and more in the West, I would say there's a lot more open-mindedness. And even the sort of these silly people that follow, uh, say, Dawkins, all these, these sort of silly modern atheists who wouldn't know philosophy if they tripped over it. Um, I would say the majority of people in the Western world, a strong majority of people in India, mm -hmm. Uh, and other countries do, and certainly South America, they absolutely have a more cosmopolitan view of religion. So the real fanatics, you know, they make a lot of noise, but they're not the majority. So that's why we can hope for a peaceful future. Open-minded religious philosophy is having two sections against the motion. One, the atheists and scientific believers in the close. To say that someone is being illogical is not fanatical. So it is open-minded. And to, uh, yeah, so the, I agree with that statement. So if I say that what you said is, 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 is illogical, that's not fanatical. It's just, it's actually insisting that we be rational. So any religion or faith that rests only upon dogmas and handbook of religion, such as Bible and Quran, unlike the San, Sanatan Dharma, which has evolved over centuries. Well, actually, you know, there are, there is room, I think, and there are certain sections of the Bible and Quran which actually do give permission and facility for being more open-minded. It's, I think, the interpretations of those texts. And so in the Bible, for example, the Old Testament, it's, it's basically, you know, for many, many, many centuries, it was the Jewish history. And so everything in the Old Testament is, some of it is descriptive, not prescriptive. A lot of the things in the Old Testament, the Bible's not saying this is what you should think. It's simply saying these, this is what people did think. And so a lot of it is historiographical. Yeah. And as far as the New Testament, we know that the New Testament as we have it today, the canon, did not become, was not agreed upon until several centuries after Jesus. And so, in fact, before Constantine, there were many 
Christianities with many different views. There were many philosophies, there were debates. It wasn't until the middle of the 300s, say about 300 years after Jesus, that by political, military, fanatical imposition that you had to think a certain way about Jesus. And uh, so therefore, Jesus, I would say himself was not a fanatic, but his movement was taken over by fanatics. That, that's actually what happened. So the Satan Dharma had multitude of inputs from each soul that were born. Yeah, I, I mean, the, there's nothing like Sanatan Dharma in terms of millions of very smart people, open-minded, just debating things. And so it's, it's really unique. Christianity, as I said, most Christians now in America, I'm sure in Europe, are not fanatical and they're willing to talk to you about things. And, and, and so there are still fanatics, but they don't control these religions. Islam, that's another discussion. So open-minded religious philosophy is having, oh, I read that. We must have these programs in Hindi. Oh yeah, that'd be great. I'll have to learn <laughs> Hindi or have to get a translator. So my belief is that God is a supreme power. Even I haven't seen him, but I believe in his presence. We do have God in us, but in troubled time, we lose faith in him. How can this be corrected? Dr. Nandita. Um, I think that it's kind of, you know, the, the, where the road divides and there's the high road and the low road because Historically, a lot of people in troubled times, they turn to God. For example, now in America, there are so many crazy people and the politicians are just so useless in so many ways. I mean, not completely useless. I mean, the electricity still works in my apartment. And I mean, but, but there, there's just so much corruption and, and, and just nonsense that, uh, you know, Hare Krishna, there's nowhere to turn but to Krishna. In fact, just one quick example. If you look at the Roman conquest of Greece, when Greek city-states were independent, autonomous, because Greek citizens really had a lot of power in their communities, and so they were very this-worldly. When Greece was conquered by the Romans, and suddenly power was very distant, very remote, that a place, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, Rome was controlling your life, people kind of gave up on this world, and you had a big switch to a higher world, spiritual world, heaven. And so the material problems drove people to sort of give up on finding real happiness in this world and to become more interested in their ultimate destiny. And so it, it goes different ways. It goes different ways. I totally agree that Hinduism, Hinduism has been reduced, we're almost done, to rituals and not given due importance to jnana, yoga, and philosophical understanding. Oh, that wasn't a question, but Subhash Goel. Thank you very much for agreeing. So uh, that's not a question. I think many of the questions I already uh, included. Yeah, oh, I see, you're doing that. Yeah. Okay, so maybe we're done. Uh, Almost done. Yeah, thank you all very much. I would like to personally thank you very much. Thank you so much. For uh, and and every, everyone who attended. I mean, I really do appreciate, I know everyone's busy nowadays and I don't take it for granted that you show up here. And I really do appreciate your participation. Yeah, we are really thanks to my host, Hare Krishna. Uh, uh, you took out so much of time last three three weeks, uh, more than uh, today. It's already more than two hours. We're, we're really indebted to you. 
for your time you took out and uh, we hope in future also we can organize similar such programs i, I do hope for people have lot of more questions also pending <laughs> uh, personally also i received on my private chat so maybe sometime we can uh, figure out a schedule uh, where you can uh, add some other topics and uh, you may kindly enlighten us uh, if that is uh, feasible for you uh, my pleasure and my pleasure it, it's really for me because because i'm kind of stuck in the west by krishna's arrangement and so for me it's actually from every point of view very interesting to have a chance to interact with you know uh, spend time with uh, great souls in in bharata and i'm working now actually on mahabharata so yeah for me it's a real pleasure to have a chance to associate with all of you yeah, thank you so much we're so indebted to you hari krishna hari krishna Hope to see you soon. <laughs> yeah, right. surely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you to all our participants uh, who so kindly uh, uh, waited for more than two and two two hours and fifteen minutes. Uh, so we are really indebted to all of you also. We have to get Maharaji uh, most more often uh, because yeah. no, that is going to raise the standard uh, of the uh, the the things we are looking for. yeah true, true okay so thank you so much uh, so the live streaming could be stopped now uh, hope the host is there and also the recording could be stopped okay bro thank you thank you so much hari krishna